Hello and welcome back to Beer and Money. This will be a the first part of a two-part interview series with Dr. Wade Fow. Uh, in the first part, we are going to discuss retirement planning accumulate during your accumulation years and spending in retirement. Next week, we'll go ahead and pick up with episode two. Hello and welcome back to Beer and Money. I'm your host today, Alex Collins, and I am I have the pleasure of introducing a Dr. Wade or introducing Dr. Wade Fow. Uh, we'll be interviewing him today. Uh, Dr. Fow is has his uh, doctorate uh, in economics from Princeton. He also has a master's from Princeton, bachelor's from University of Iowa. He is a chartered financial analyst or CFA. He is a professor of retirement income at the American College. He is the director of the RICP or the Retirement Income Certified Professional designation at the American College. He is a founder at The Retirement Researcher and the author of three books. Welcome, Dr. Fow. Thanks, Alex. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, I, I'm excited because you are, in my humble opinion, the expert on retirement income planning. Um, and widely acknowledged as one of the the thought leaders in this space, um, you know, in the industry. So I'm thrilled to be able to have you on the podcast today, and and look forward to the conversation. Well, thanks, I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, and so, a broad topic: retirement income planning. Where do you want to start? <laughs> yeah, it is a broad topic, so that's an important question. I, um, I think it's worth just addressing the reality that there are different retirement income styles out there. That if people are reading about retirement planning on the internet or wherever they're getting their information, you kind of see these distinct approaches where just people talk past each other. Some people are comfortable with an investments only strategy, seeking a, a high stock allocation and getting returns from the stock market. Other people prefer a strategy that uses more of contractual protections to support at least basic living expenses in retirement with annuities and that sort of thing. And the reality is that there are different approaches that will suit different people based on their, their personal preferences and circumstances. So an area I've been doing a lot of work recently is just, we call it the retirement income style awareness of trying to help guide people towards understanding amongst different retirement income approaches, what might work best for their personal situation. Absolutely. And so like, are those, so there's, as I understand it, there's really kind of three main ones that you talk about, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. For a long time now, the, like the financial planning association and different organizations have classified three main strategies. They're called systematic withdrawals, which is things like the 4% rule of thumb, where you're just using an aggressive investment portfolio, 50 to 75% stocks in retirement and managing some sort of distribution strategy from that over time. On the other end of the spectrum would be essential versus discretionary, where you're thinking about first building a lifetime income base with, well, social security, traditional pensions, and potentially annuities to fill any gaps there. And then for more discretionary types of expenses, thinking about the investment portfolio. And then in the middle, there's a hybrid, it's time segmentation or bucketing, where you just think about using investment assets in a, a different manner than a total return portfolio. You use bonds to cover more like short-term expenses, stocks for longer-term expenses. And then with those three approaches, when we developed the retirement income style awareness, we just divided essential versus discretionary into uh, income protection and uh, risk wrap, which just makes a distinction between 
whether people are comfortable with traditional income annuities, where you give up the asset to support the most efficient lifetime income, or deferred annuities, where you may not get the most downside income protection, but you still maintain the ability to invest those assets to have a lifetime income, but to also have liquidity and, and more options if you want to get those assets back at some point. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so now is there, aside from whomever you're talking to, having a preference for one of these styles, is there is there a style or a structure that you have a tendency to lean towards? Well, for me personally, I think I do tend more towards a, a safety first approach where you also think about the role for risk pooling tools or contractual protections. And, and when you have that, you can invest pretty aggressively with the risk. So I am comfortable with investing in the stock market and using an aggressive asset allocation. But at the same time, like when I think about my own retirement planning, I don't want to assume a high rate of return. I, I want to assume that even if I'm retired and I hit a big market downturn in the early retirement years, my plan would still work. And that's where ultimately I'm not personally going to want to use just an investment portfolio for retirement. I'm going to want to layer in some annuity protections as well. And then when I have that, my lifestyle is protected more so that if the stock market did go down, it's not going to screw up my entire retirement. Uh, I still have the floor and I can have that comfort to still invest aggressively with the rest. So that points me more towards a safety first style approach, income protection, risk graph type strategies. Yeah, And so with that safety first concept, what you're talking about is, is really setting that setting a floor almost for, for income where the, the basic expenses are, are being taken care of on a guaranteed basis. Uh, you mentioned social security and pensions, um, and then the possibility of supplementing that with, uh, with annuities. And there's, there's a host of different types of annuities. Um, do you, do you want to get into talking a little bit about the different types of annuities or, or kind of some of the structures there? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so we've got fixed annuities and we've got variable annuities. And in terms of practical experience of what's out there, there there's a couple more categories mixed in, but you've got on one end income annuities, which are supporting a, a lifetime income. That's the idea of a SPIA, a single premium immediate annuity or a deferred income annuity there's also QLACs, the Qualified Longevity Annuity Contracts, which allow you to hold back on some required minimum distributions in retirement accounts. And in theory, and this is, there's exceptions to all this, but in theory, they should support the most guaranteed lifetime income because you give up liquidity, you don't have access to those assets anymore, and you don't have any growth potential for those assets. Then as you start moving away from there, Next along the line would be something like a fixed index annuity, where you, if you have a, a living benefit attached, so you have guaranteed lifetime income associated with it, you still have the underlying asset base, and it will have principal protection, so that even if the markets go down and you're linked to like a, a stock market index, you're not going to lose ground with that, but you still have some exposure to upside. It's going to ultimately behave, it, it could be competitive with bonds, especially taxable bonds because it gives you some tax deferral and the, the guaranteed lifetime income. Then as you keep moving along, there is a, a newer category we see now that are like, they don't even have a clear name yet, but structured annuities or registered investment linked annuities that uh, they don't have the principal protection, but they have some way to cut off some of the downside risk for the underlying assets. 
and then give you potentially then more upside exposure than a fixed index annuity. And then finally, you've got the variable annuity, the deferred variable annuity. You can still invest in sub accounts and still have that stock bond mix so that the underlying asset value can, can grow and can have losses just like any investment. But when you add a guaranteed living benefit to it, you can still support protected lifetime income while maintaining access to the assets and growth potential for the assets. And so in theory, that may have the lowest downside protected income level, but it gives you the most upside potential as well as the most liquidity. And, and so there's a range of options and it's just a matter of selecting where you're most comfortable on that spectrum. And, and so what I'm hearing from you is that all of these are just tools that there aren't, they aren't necessarily good or bad in and of themselves. It's all about personal preference and how you're using it within the plan, as opposed to it being innately good or bad in and of itself. Right, right. It's just like any tool. I, I also, I mean, maybe a good way to think about this as well is there's three basic ways you can fund retirement. The starting point would just be bonds, that you can build a ladder of bonds. So you have uh, interest and then maturing bonds every year, supporting your spending in retirement. That's going to be a costly approach, but it doesn't have the downside risk. If you hold bonds to maturity, and of course, assuming they don't default, which we'll, we'll keep that assumption, then you, you get the income that you're expecting. It's going to be a low level of income, though. So there's two ways to get more spending power than that. The first is with an annuity, which the underlying assets may behave a lot like a bond, but they add risk pooling. They have this ability for, for those who live longer and need more spending power, they'll be supported by those in the risk pool who didn't live as long and don't need as much spending power. That's the idea of mortality credits and risk pooling that lets you spend more than bonds alone. And you can compare that to the other approach would be the diversified aggressive investment portfolio where you may, with things like the 4% rule of thumb, hold 70, 50 to 75% stocks in retirement where you're hoping that stocks will outperform bonds, there's no certainty that that will happen. But historically, if you're comfortable saying historically it's true, stocks typically outperform bonds, then that gives you a way to also spend more than bonds. And so annuities in the stock market are two different options that give you potential to spend more than bonds. And yeah, it's really then just a matter of fitting them together to figure out the best approach for your retirement. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So much of it is just, again, trying to figure out, okay, what's the method that, that we're taking? Um, one of the analogies that I, I heard you, you use when you're talking about retirement um, is the breakfast analogy, where um, you've got uh, uh, eggs and uh, bacon. And uh, I, I'm not going to do it justice. So if, if you don't mind jumping into that, that analogy... Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that analogy, it's from Dirk Cotton at the Retirement Cafe blog, who unfortunately, he just recently passed away, but he was a really great influence to me and others in retirement. And it, he has this analogy about the breakfast where you look at a, a plate, and it has, um, I guess you could say bacon and eggs on it. And what he says about that is the chicken was involved in making the breakfast, the pig was committed to making the breakfast. And, and so the analogy for retirement is when you're in the pre-retirement phase, you're kind of like the chicken, you're involved in the planning process, but you still have a lot more flexibility and capacity to make adjustments and to get back on track with your plans. 
post-retirement, you really become committed to your financial plan. You're going to get one sequence of market returns, one opportunity to have a successful retirement. And you really need to make sure you have a plan in place that's more or less going to work no matter what's happening in the financial markets. And so he, he said, retirees need to think like pigs. And that's there, you're committed. You're no longer involved. You're committed to your retirement plan. You need to make sure you have a plan that's going to work for you. Now, does that then become the the number one uh the, the number one thing that, that retirees need to focus on is, is that sequence of return risk that you just talked about or? It's that, yeah, it's a combination. So longevity risk really comes first because it's such a huge range. The, the longer you live, of course, it's wonderful, but it makes retirement more expensive. Every year of retirement is another year of your budget you have to fund. So your costs are growing with the length of retirement. And so then with long retirements, that's where you had to worry about, well, if you're using an investment portfolio, markets are volatile, but specifically that sequence of returns risk idea, it it amplifies the volatility because if you're spending from assets and there's a market downturn and and you don't have any other option, you've got to spend an increasing percentage of what's left. You have to sell more shares to meet your spending goals. And then that digs a hole for the portfolio that even if the overall market recovers, your portfolio may not recover. And so retirees are really vulnerable to what happens with market returns in their early retirement years. And that becomes an an equally important risk as well, alongside longevity risk. Well, I I love what you, what you say on this topic. I mean, it's near and dear to my heart. One of the things that I think is, is, isn't really fully understood is how big of a difference there is in the sequence of returns. And what we mean by that is having the negative uh, years in the market occur at the beginning of your retirement is, is much more detrimental than having negative years, say in your eighties or, or, you know, even seventies or beyond. Mm-hmm. Um, talk a little bit more about, uh, about why that is, is so impactful and maybe how bit much bigger of a difference it makes um, having that, those negative years occur early in retirement. Yeah. I mean, an example I like to use is, well, there's this well-known 4% rule of thumb that says how much retirees should be able to spend based on historical data. And to be clear about that, it was based on the market returns. If you were this hypothetical person retiring in 1966, and you used a 50-50 asset allocation, and you wanted your money a little to last for 30 years, you would have run out of money in 1995, 30 years later, if you spent 4%, was actually 4.03% of your retirement date assets, and adjusted that spending amount for inflation each year. Now, if you do the math behind, how much could I spend from my investment portfolio to do that? It implies a 1.3% return after inflation. If you then look at, well, what were the market returns for that 50-50 portfolio from 1966 to 1995? The markets averaged 4.2% as a growth rate after inflation. So that if you just put money in the market in 1966 and let leave it untouched, let it grow for the next 30 years, it would have grown at 4.2% after inflation. But if you actually retired in 1966 and started taking distributions, the return you get as a retiree is only 1.3%. And that's a huge difference. It, the, the story is in halfway through that retirement in 1982, there's a big turnaround and markets do great. 
after 1982. So it pulls up the average market return, but it was too late for that retiree. They're spending down their assets. Their distribution rate is just too high by 1982. They can't enjoy that overall market recovery. They're locked into that sort of worst case scenario, even though the best case scenario for a retiree began in 1982. It's halfway through the worst case scenario. Well, absolutely. I mean, this, I mean, we actually just uh, finished recording a series on the, the mountain climber analogy, which I know you use as well, where uh, <laughs> the, it, it illustrates the difference between accumulating assets pre-retirement and then decumulating assets or spending assets in retirement. Um, you know, it, everyone's focused on climbing to the, to the peak of the mountain, and yet most of the deaths in mountaineering occur on the descent coming down the mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there is much more danger in creating income than there is in accumulating. And, and until people actually experience going through retirement, the, the difference between how they, how they internalize accumulation and how they internalize spending becomes dramatically different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, spending is very different. It's one of those factors we look at with the retirement income style awareness of, do you have an accumulation mindset, which most people do have pre-retirement and it's just growing that pot of assets, or do you have a distribution mindset, which just recognizes that if you're trying to fund steady income from an investment portfolio, well, it's a different problem that you're trying to solve there than if you're just trying to grow a pot of assets and are you going to be thinking about that differently or not? It's really an important factor in determining the type of approach to take with your retirement spending. For sure. Um, now, is the this may be a little bit of a, a loaded question, but is is there is there a way or a, a time frame in, in which people should start trying to make that transition from the accumulation mindset to the distribution mindset? Yeah, I mean, it's an important question. And there's not not necessarily like rigorous research about a specific answer. But I think generally what you'll see and find is in that five to 10 years before retirement begins, to really start thinking about that transition process. And whether that means starting to use a deferred annuity approach, or whether that means starting to shift your bond funds into a bond ladder so that you have bonds maturing in those early retirement years, you can just start planning ahead in, in those five to 10 years to, to be ready so that when you get to retirement, you've got some protected income in place. You're not just fully still in that same total return style investment portfolio that you are using pre-retirement. You're starting to structure that portfolio more to fund retirement expenses. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's, it's that, that critical like 15 year time window, right? You know, five to 10 years pre-retirement and then about five to 10 years post-retirement. That, that's the most critical time period um, for, for whether you're successful in retirement. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that has to do with, with how you're going through the planning and, and what you're doing to set yourself up so that we can minimize that, that uh, sequence of return risk during that critical you know, 15 year time period. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things that I've, I've heard used quite a bit, um, going back to your earlier point about longevity, is that uh, longevity isn't necessarily a risk in and of itself. It's a risk multiplier for 
all of the other risks that we uh, experience in retirement. Uh huh. Right, right. Because the other kind of risk that I didn't mention too much yet is also just the idea of spending shocks, that you have these unexpected surprises, long-term care, big healthcare bills, helping adult family members and things. And so the longer the retirement lasts, it's just simply that's a, each year you live, that's another year of your, your basic budget that you may have anticipated. You've got to fund another year of that budget, but then you're just adding the risk that you have to also fund these unexpected surprises along the way. And the longer the retirement lasts, the more unexpected outcomes you're going to experience as well. So it multiplies that risk. Absolutely. Um, again, this may be an unfair question, but, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't at least ask the question. What is the number one recommendation that you have for for folks in terms of retirement planning or retirement income planning? Well, there's it's hard to to boil down to just one thing. There's just so much to be thinking about. Uh, I'm still working on a final book about retirement income planning. It's, it's meant to be the key decisions for retirement. And it's got 13 chapters. It's kind of like 10 key decisions. I do start off with just figuring out what is your retirement income style? Because then that, that's going to help guide you towards how much should you be reading about investment strategies and things, or how much should you be reading about annuities and that sort of thing to help lay that foundation. But from there, it's start to think about the risks to your plan, think about your budget, think about, do you have enough assets to meet your goals? Are you like prepared to retire? And then beyond building the tools to fund the retirement spending, you got to claim social security to think about health insurance and Medicare decisions. If you're going to use any sort of strategy for long-term care planning, uh, housing decisions where you want to live in retirement and if you're able to age in place so that you can be comfortable, even if you have less mobility later in retirement, tax planning and how to be diversified between different types of accounts and how to spend down those accounts most efficiently, legacy planning, making sure incapacity planning as well. Like you have your healthcare directives, you have your power of attorney, but also wills and trust planning and then also very important is the non-financial aspect of retirement. Do you, what are you going to do? How are you going to spend your time? Do you have something to replace the, all the time you spend at work? It's very important to retirement success. And then just putting that all together. So it's really hard to say one decision, but, but hopefully that's hitting on the main key decisions to be thinking about to, to get everything put together in the right way. Yeah. I mean, what do you do when every day becomes Saturday, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's for people who are really focused on their work, it can be hard to give that up to the status, the, the way you spent your time every day and to replace that in a satisfying way. What the loss of the sense of self. Mm -hmm. If Uh, you identify with your work. Uh Right. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, And that's one of the challenges that, uh, that I know that a bunch of my clients have faced is trying to figure out like, okay, I'm, I'm no longer a financial planner or an accountant or an attorney or, or insert profession here. Mm -hmm. Who, who am I? What do I do? Right. Um, And that, that can be really challenging. Thank you for listening to the first part of the interview with Dr. Wade Fow. Uh, As always, we hope that you enjoyed and got value out of this episode of Beer and Money. Please head over to beerandmoney.net and fill out our response asking for feedback. What is it that you took away of value? 
what would, what are you looking for in upcoming uh, episodes? Uh, and if there's anything that we can help you out with or any, any uh, follow-up that you have on the content from today or any of the other podcasts. As always, cheers. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice. Although the information has been gathered from sources believed to be reliable, please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Quantified Financial Partners, and opinions stated are their own. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. All investments and investment strategies contain risk and may lose value. Annuities are long-term investment vehicles designed to help investors save for retirement and involve certain contract limitations, fees, expenses, and risks, including possible loss of the principal amount invested. As with many investments, there are fees, expenses, and risks associated with these contracts. All guarantees, including the death benefit payments, are dependent upon the claims paying ability of the issuing company. Whole life insurance is intended to provide death benefit protection for an individual's entire life. Some whole life policies do not have cash values in the first two years of the policy and don't pay a dividend until the policy's third year. Talk to your financial representative and refer to your individual whole life policy illustration for more information. Policy benefits are reduced by any outstanding loans and loan interest. Dividends, if any, are affected by policy loans and loan interest. If the policy lapses or is surrendered, any loans considered gain in the policy may be subject to ordinary income taxes. Alex is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC. OSJ 333 North Indian Hill Boulevard, Claremont, California, 91711. Telephone number 9093991100. Securities products and advisory services offered through Park Avenue Securities, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representatives of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. Park Avenue Securities is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Quantified Financial Partners is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Park Avenue Securities or Guardian. Alexander Collins AR Insurance License number 7264699, CA Insurance License number 0H24806, pinpoint number 2021-118200, expiration March 2023.